This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Just shifting to look at what's happening in, in Europe and in the UK without that background mm-hmm. um, would be rather empty. Um, so now uh, we're keeping you sitting for quite a long time. So I'll just explain what will, what will happen now over the next hour. Um, we'll now shift and look at uh, really the summaries of the uh, protection in Europe uh, for refugees from Syria, um, as well as the, the brief, as well as the note. I just draw you to attention to the very careful wording refugees from Syria in case that didn't occur to anybody. We were really quite concerned because we're not only talking about Syrians, we're talking about Palestinian refugees, we're talking about Kurds, many of them stateless, Turkmen. You know, Syria was a country of great diversity and many of those crossing borders didn't necessarily hold Syrian citizenship. So they are part of the group that we are trying to look at. I do want to say, what we'll do is uh, we'll ask um, Cynthia to speak first because she's going to give a summary and overview of her findings related to uh, really legal mechanisms for asylum in Europe, and then uh, Andy will talk about the UK. But I just want to say that this study is actually a companion piece, and actually it's a shorter companion piece to a very large study which uh, a colleague of mine from the uh, Boston University School of Law, Susan Akram, has conducted a legal mapping uh, of uh, prospects for asylum and protection in the region itself. And her study looks at the situation in uh, in Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, and Egypt. And the link to that study is up online. Uh, and both studies will be taken out to UNHCR XCOM later this month. So I will turn over to Cynthia, then Andy, then we'll have a question-answer session. And then I think by then you'll be ready for a break. We'll have reception upstairs. Um, coffee, tea, juice, whatever. We thought it was a bit too early for wine, but uh, I guess we could always go out and get it if you really need it. So, Cynthia, I'm going to turn it over to you now. Thank you. Um, Did you want to speak from up here, or are you happy there? I'm happy here. <laughs> um, I'd like to start by thanking Don and also Susan Akram um, for initiating this research project and for providing guidance to myself and to Andrew in the preparation of the policy briefing. Uh, I will give a brief overview of Europe's response to the Syrian refugee crisis so far. I will discuss some of the most serious problems within that response and some of the more positive aspects of the European response. And I will also summarize our recommendations and note some of the obstacles to achieving them in Europe. I will then conclude on a positive note, so wait for that. Um, As Dawn showed us on the big screen earlier, of approximately 3 million refugees from Syria, about 96% of them live in the five countries neighboring Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt. As the UN High Commissioner for Refugees noted last year, and things have worsened since then, This is one of the worst refugee crises in the world, and it is contributing to significant destabilization of the entire region. 
With respect to Europe, it's not the case that European nations are doing nothing for refugees from Syria. Europe collectively is the largest contributor of humanitarian and development aid to countries near Syria. And some European leaders have actively participated in seeking a resolution to the conflict. We suggest in our briefing, however, that providing aid and advocacy is not enough. And we also note that the aid provided has been insufficient to meet the needs of the refugees. To show real solidarity with the countries neighboring Syria and with the refugees themselves, European countries should open their borders to many more refugees. In addition to aid, European countries are also spending millions of euros on building fences between the borders with Greece and Bulgaria and Turkey and on, and on other border control measures. And we suggest that these and other resources could be better directed towards temporary protection, resettlement, humanitarian admission, and other programs which focus on allowing entry into Europe. Many refugees in the countries near Syria live in absolutely appalling conditions without adequate food, shelter, health care, or other basic necessities of life. Many also face abuse of one kind or another, and some borders in the region have been shut to refugees. And as Roger Zetter noted, some groups such as Palestinians face particularly difficult conditions. Despite the harsh conditions faced by many refugees in those countries, the fact is that they have opened their borders in a much more generous way to Syrian refugees than European countries have. Each of these countries individually hosts more refugees from Syria than all of Europe combined. Only about 4% of refugees from Syria have entered Europe, uh, and the figure is approximately 123,000 as of July 2014. And most of those refugees had no alternative but to enter Europe without permission, many risking their lives to do so because there are so few legal routes for entry into Europe. Unfortunately, although there is a right of asylum in European law, it generally does not carry with it an authorization to enter Europe in order to exercise that right. By mid-2014, European countries, apart from Germany, had agreed to admit only approximately 6,300 refugees from Syria through newly created resettlement and humanitarian admission programs. There are now 17 European countries that are offering Syrian refugees resettlement or humanitarian admission. But the problem remains that the numbers of places are very limited. They range from very low numbers in countries like Liechtenstein, which has offered four resettlement places, Portugal, which has offered 23, to higher numbers in countries like Austria, which has offered 1,500 humanitarian admission places, Sweden, which has offered 1,200, Norway, 1,000, and then much higher numbers for resettlement or humanitarian admission um, in Germany, 20,000 plus 5,500 private sponsorships. Germany is therefore far and away the leader in Europe in offering admission to refugees from Syria. And if you have the copy of the policy briefing, you can see these figures on table three. Although the EU has been working towards harmonization of the asylum systems among EU countries, 
There is wide variation in the treatment of Syrian refugees in different European countries. For example, in terms of reception conditions for asylum seekers in some countries, such as Greece, into mid-2013, Syrian refugees were frequently being arrested for illegal entry and detained by the police without an opportunity to claim asylum and have their claim adequately assessed. In some countries, such as Bulgaria, reception facilities were, again into 2013, wholly inadequate and there were reports of lack of adequate food, medical care, heating and accommodation during cold winter months, and other very serious problems. Fortunately, in both Greece and Bulgaria, the authorities are working with EU asylum support agencies and with UNHCR to improve their asylum systems. At the other end of the spectrum are countries such as Germany, Sweden, Norway, and the UK, which, although not perfect by any means, offer significantly better reception programs for asylum seekers and integration programs for refugees. Generally, they provide access to basic living allowances and accommodation for refugees without the means to support themselves, healthcare, access to education, and other basic essentials of life. We propose a plan of action for Europe consisting of three main parts. Um, the first component is temporary protection or humanitarian admission in Europe. We suggest that for a start, other European nations could follow Germany's example. Um, as I mentioned, Germany has pledged to admit 20,000 refugees from Syria through a temporary humanitarian admission program. And they have already made a very good start on achieving this goal in 2014. And in addition, German states have initiated private sponsorships for refugees from Syria, through which approximately 5,500 refugees had benefited by mid-2014. Alternatively, European nations could adopt some of the best elements from the temporary protection program that Turkey has established to deal with the more than 800,000 refugees from Syria in Turkey. And European countries could also consider the 2001 EU Temporary Protection Directive, which provides a framework for how temporary protection could be implemented in Europe. For example, the directive contains provisions on how to arrange admission into Europe on a large scale. This directive is not mandatory, but it offers guidance on how European countries could refocus their efforts to take in more refugees from Syria in an organized and coordinated way. The second component of the plan of action is an expanded resettlement program. Uh, I just want to explain for those who might not be familiar that resettlement programs differ from temporary protection or humanitarian admission in that resettlement is generally um, permanent, so people come in with the right to remain indefinitely in the host country. However, only two European countries, Sweden and Norway, are offering resettlement to a thousand or more refugees from Syria in 2014. Most European countries offer resettlement to 500 or fewer refugees, or they offer humanitarian admission, which is temporary rather than permanent resettlement. We suggest that the resettlement programs offered by European countries could be expanded at least sufficiently to clear the backlog of refugees in the Syrian region because there was a significant backlog of refugees existing in the region prior to the beginning of the Syrian conflict and there are thousands of refugees who have been waiting for resettlement for many years. 
The third component of the plan of action is to development alternative to develop alternative routes of entry. We suggest that European countries could look for ways to admit refugees from Syria through routes such as humanitarian visas, special student visas, employment and training visas, and expanded family reunification visas. And they could combine these with a relaxation of the usual immigration requirements, which refugees often cannot meet because they lack documents or resources. Unfortunately, anti-immigrant sentiment in Europe and the influence that this has on elections and political decisions are very serious obstacles to European countries opening their doors to more refugees. This suggests that the effort to assist refugees from Syria should include a large-scale public education program. And I'll just briefly mention two of the other main obstacles to expanding the entry of Syrian refugees into Europe, which include um, alleged security concerns. In this respect, I will just note that countries do run security checks on refugees who are proposed for admission through resettlement or humanitarian admission programs. And I'm not aware of cases in which refugees granted entry through those programs have posed security threats in Europe. But security is often raised by anti-immigrant groups as a potential problem. Another obstacle to the expansion of admission of refugees into Europe is the alleged inability to fund resettlement or humanitarian admission programs. However, even where the claims of unavailability of resources are otherwise legitimate, there is an EU fund which contributes to the costs of resettlement for any country with a resettlement program. To conclude, whilst both the humanitarian efforts to assist refugees in the countries neighboring Syria and the expansion of resettlement and other admission that is already occurring should be highly commended, we emphasize that containment of the refugee crisis to the Syrian region is an unsustainable response to the crisis. Without an imminent end to the armed conflict in Syria, it is very unlikely that refugees will be able to return home safely in the near future. And local integration is generally not possible in the countries neighboring Syria, Syria primarily because those countries are so overwhelmed by the numbers of refugees who have already entered. On a positive note, I promised, um, the good news is that change is possible. As noted, some of the countries which have the worst records on the treatment of Syrian refugees such as Bulgaria and Greece, appear since mid-2013 to be making serious efforts to improve their asylum systems with help from EU agencies and UNHCR. In addition, Italy has implemented a Mare Nostrum sea rescue program, which has rescued thousands of refugees off the Italian coast since it was implemented in late 2013. And that is another example of how quickly things can improve when there is the will to make change happen. We therefore advocate that European countries should shift their policies from attempting to contain the refugee crisis in the countries neighboring Syria and instead focus their efforts on finding ways to allow significantly higher numbers of refugees from Syria to enter Europe, allowing them to find refuge in Europe both legally and safely. I'm now going to hand over to Andrew Miller, who will discuss the UK's response to the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, thank you.
Uh, thanks, Cynthia. Um, is there any opportunity I could pop up there? Of course. Yeah. Thank you. Um, my name is Andrew Miller. First of all, I'd just like to uh, give thanks to uh, Professor Dawn Chatty for giving us the opportunity to get our teeth into this uh, really wonderful project. Um, and also to um, Cynthia, who was an absolute pleasure to work with, incredibly hardworking, and um, at one point definitely took the lead in this project, which was almost definitely needed. Um, a lot of data uh, passed through our respective um, email accounts. Um, my particular role with this project was with regards to the UK um, case study, which, um, for, alongside developing the general methodology of the paper and agreeing on the recommendations, um, and that's what I'll be presenting on um, specifically today. Um, I'll briefly go through what's in the case study in particular. Um, and uh, we'll highlight the um, vulnerable persons uh, relocation scheme, which is the UK's flagship and probably only real um, internal response to the Syrian um, refugee crisis. Uh, and I'll round up by um, asserting how the UK case study has assisted in forming the uh, briefing's recommendations. The case study. Uh, initially goes over the external policies of the United Kingdom, which is largely in line with the other European countries' responses. Um, this means lots of aid, um, which the UK has actually been quite generously. The Department for International Development and its um, boss, if you like, Foreign Commonwealth Office, has ensured that the UK's um, large aid quantities that have been sent out to uh, relevant stakeholders in neighbouring countries has been um, both well uh, stocked and um, well publicised. The case study goes through briefly the um, UK asylum framework and how those affected by the Syrian refugee crisis are likely to be impacted. The detained um, it's worth noting that there's a significant backlog that predates um, the Syrian uh, conflict entirely. So it's incredibly likely that any Syrian refugee or anybody uh, attributed to the Syrian conflict trying to gain asylum in the UK are almost certainly going to uh, come across um, a large weight, almost definitely. The detained fast track, um, or the notorious detained fast track asylum system. Um, whilst it does have a focus on ensuring a, a very swift decision from, from the moment that an applicant has decided to be uh, appropriate for the same fast track, uh, it's highly unlikely that any Syrian uh, or, or Palestinian who was originally seeking refuge in Syria would go through that process. Um, it's touched upon briefly in the case study, but in reality probably requires an entire different paper to assess exactly um, its uh, effectiveness and perhaps legality. The case study also looks at how the UK um, corresponds with its obligations under the Dublin Regulation um, Network uh, or um, uh, processes and um, it's worth noting that only judicial reviews are available after the refusal um, and not looking at the decision itself. The UK obviously has uh, big issues with the uh, sovereign clause which um, is actually quite particular, 
Um, if there's any questions on that later, that's definitely worth raising um, later and probably isn't pertinent right now. Um, and, uh, and so that's that. Uh, the case study goes through the numbers of Syrian refugees um, in the UK and if, or who made applications for asylum in the UK. And if you noticed earlier that the, uh, the one from the map that was put up by Dawn, the, uh, the UK's circle, if you like, was relatively small when you consider the means that the UK has to both um, process uh, asylum applications, irrespective of geography, um, from Syrian refugees. That itself is already worth highlighting as a, as a problem. Between January 2013 and March 2014, 2,052 applications for asylum from Syrian nationals, that's Syrian nationals only, and 709 cases were already pending at that point. The case study also alludes to the detention of Syrians, which isn't uh, of uh, too much um, importance, but uh, frequency, considering the um, political sensitivity of detaining somebody who's just had to flee across the entire of Europe um, to uh, attempt to gain asylum in the United Kingdom. Um, and it's incredibly unlikely that any Syrians are going to be um, sent back to Syria based on obviously logistics, I don't think Damascus airports are open, and secondly, um, the UK would obviously be in uh, violation of its international obligations um, to send any Syrians back. It's uh, regarding the sending back of any Syrian nationals to um, neighbouring countries, I'm sure that's uh, is in fact dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis, um, and it's, it's difficult to, to latch onto a report of this kind. <coughs> There are also concessions made to Syrians who are already within the immigration um, system, uh, which is set aside from asylum. Um, these are potentially seen as a, a, a caveat to how the UK should be dealing with asylum applications, where those who can afford to stay within the immigration rules have been given these concessions. This is perhaps an incentive to keep them within that immigration um, system as opposed to an asylum application that they are well and truly um, uh, able to, to make. <clears throat> it also touches on the airport transit visas, which are in effect a, um, another barrier for any Syrian national trying to get to the UK and was actually only imposed uh, late 2012. It's only a £50 fee, but that uh, is albeit another obstacle to, um, to jump over. The case study also goes through a brief jurisprudential development over how Syrians should be dealt with in the uh, UK courts if any decisions are possibly challenged. And uh, when read with the Home Office operational guidance, often reflect um, a reality to a certain degree, um, which is often far away from the, uh, from the policy set by the policy makers. Now, the main policies set in place by the UK government have been with regards to UK relocation schemes, or, or rather um, an ad hoc one created the uh, vulnerable persons relocation scheme. But if I could just give a, a tiny bit of background into the other relocation schemes first, uh, offer some context. The Gateway Programme and the Mandate Programme are both set within the context of the bilateral uh, agreement between the UK and the UNHCR. Um, identifying uh, those migrants, or obviously forced migrants who are in 
um, the greatest need uh, for relocation to the UK. Gateway um, has a quota of 750 per year from across the, from across the globe. Um, those individuals are identified by UNHCR as appropriate for relocation to the UK, and refugee status is almost always granted. Mandate has no quota, but has a focus on reunification of families, of, of refugees, and it is on these relocation schemes that the bumble uh, person relocation, or to um, to say my uh, speaking with the VPR scheme, um, was face. <coughs> now the VPR scheme, um, as I've already noticed, is probably the government's only real primary uh, tool specifically dealing with the Syrian refugee crisis. Note the word relocation. It's not quite temporary protection, and it's not quite resettlement. The specifics of, I'll allude to later probably tend to show that it's more of a temporary protection, but considering the, um, the closeness of the word relocation to resettlement is often a, a mistaken as such. On the 17th of January this year, Theresa May, the Home Secretary, um, announced the uh, setting up of the VPR in partnership with the UNHCR. Uh, it was based on three main points. First is that the assistance to uh, most vulnerable people uh, from the Syrian conflict will be of, of most benefit or will be beneficiaries to the VPR scheme. Those who have been identified as having been victims of torture, um, children who are in particularly gross circumstances and um, running concurrently with a, a, a current foreign and commonwealth office um, programme looking at raising awareness regarding sexual violence and conflict. Um, those uh, victims of sexual violence are almost definitely going to be pinpointed as appropriate candidates. At the time of writing the report, there were horrific reports coming out of Jordanian um, refugee camps of around 12,000 reported cases of sexual violence. Now, that itself shows um, the, the level of um, sexual violence happening in, uh, in and around or as a result of the Syrian conflict, um, and that's just the reported cases. It's very easy to assume that that's just the sheer number, that that's just the number of um, sexual violence cases, but of course uh, such cases are very rarely ever reported. Secondly, the VPR scheme run concurrently with Gateway and Mandate. Um, again, in partnership with UNHCR, and um, the UK uh, decided not to join a wider resettlement programme um, the UNHCR set up with other countries. <coughs> Excuse me. The, uh, the third point, and I think this is quite important, at least on the face of it, is that there's no quota. The government says uh, that this has given the Home Office a greater level of flexibility, um, and, and it sounds nice, but what that means in reality may mean something different later on down the line when we've got a greater understanding of exactly how many people have been admitted to the UK under the VPR scheme. Um, there were calls in Parliament, um, as prompted by various uh, civil society groups from the opposition, um, to for the UK to act in solidarity with the MACR um, programme. But considering that it was going to be based uh, on VPL is going to be based on Gateway, um, it seems to be a, an ain't broke, don't fix situation from the UK Home Office, who decided that an extension of, of Gateway, essentially VPR, um, would be the best way the UK could provide um, a level of protection. 
<coughs> now, very little is actually known on the details of how VPR works. Um, one has to trawl through Hansard and Freedom of Information requests um, to find any relevant answers. But on the 25th of March of this year, the first beneficiaries arrived. The Immigration Minister, James Brokenshire, who I believe isn't possibly publicizing as it goes along, noted uh, some more specific details. Firstly, it is essentially five years of humanitarian protection. Now that uh, means that it's definitely not a resettlement program, um, irrespective of how it's branded. Now what comes with humanitarian protection um, and all of the rights and benefits that go with it include access to public funds, access to the labour market and the potential of family reunion. <clears throat> Numbers, as so often um, loved by parliamentarians when making speeches, um, also have been very difficult to come by, although, again, using parliamentary privilege, um, have been granted. The uh, MP Keith Vance, who's chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee, uh, asked exactly that question on the 13th of May this year, to which he was replied, uh, to which the reply was 24. 24 persons um, were relocated and were deemed vulnerable enough to be relocated under the VPR. Uh, just a week before, Lord Vaughan in the House of Lords was given a written response to how many, um, to his question which alluded to how many people do they expect to uh, relocate to the UK under VPR, to which several, to which the answer was several hundred people over the next three years. Now again, I'd like to you know, cast your mind back to how small the, the relative um, circle was over the UK compared to the 20,000 admitted by Germany under the uh, humanitarian uh, emissions programme. <clears throat> um, Austria, just over a thousand people admitted under humanitarian protection, and yet within uh, over three years, just a few hundred. Um, there have been some protection gaps that have been identified. Um, uh, under a, a parliamentary question asked on the 4th of March this year, uh, and that back in 2003, so this doesn't cover from, from before, um, from March to, to January, um, there have been 24, 24 enforced removal um, uh, elements, sanctions by the UK government. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they were moved back to Syria, but it's more than likely that they were moved to other third countries outside of the dumping regulations. Whether or not that would happen now is, is, a, is, is a difficult question um, that I'd like to ask the Home Office, but we'll see. <clears throat> now, finally, um, I'd like to just show how the UK case study assisted in the formulation of the paper's uh, recommendations, <clears throat> primarily the first two with regards to an expansion of humanitarian protection and expansion of resettlement. Cynthia's already noted that um, the reception facilities for the United Kingdom are generally uh, good um, on the whole, uh, but there's definitely more that the United Kingdom can do. Numbers alluded to the VPR, or numbers alluded to those admitted under VPR are clearly not enough. In light of the uh, general asylum uh, frameworks, inability to deal with any fresh new claims, let alone uh, a mass amount of claims, which is likely to um, occur over the next 
two years from, from, those, from, from the region, uh, irrespective of other uh, conflicts which have either arisen both in the region or, or are likely to arise elsewhere around the world, the, the numbers of native under VPR simply aren't enough. VPR is to be welcomed, however, um, as any uh, relocation scheme, but humanitarian protection um, can only be uh, welcomed. Um, and in light of the UK's similar capacity to, company, uh, to countries such as Germany, for example, um, there's absolutely no reason why the UK can't create a perhaps ad hoc, uh, even more, even more short-term humanitarian protection programme. And it seems as though it, it was a quick fix to develop the VPR in light um, of uh, a wider uh, immigration slash uh, asylum debate that's taking place in the UK right now, especially with the uh, general election just around the corner. <clears throat> um, and finally, regarding the third point um, raised in our paper's recommendations regarding other legal avenues, uh, this morning I visited the Syrian or the, the UK embassy's uh, paper page, uh, which is based on its Syrian embassy, which is obviously not working, but still there's a rather redundant advert there for uh, achieving scholarship. Um, I've got friends who've benefited from achieving scholarships from around the world coming to the UK, and um, they've been identified specifically by the embassy uh, from, from the country where they've come from um, for being good candidates for this scholarship. Now right now in Syria, obviously with no diplomatic mission from the UK, it's incredibly difficult for any other uh, similar academic um, scholarship to be awarded. There can be and there should be more um, means coming from the UK government itself to develop new legal or um, even creative legal um, avenues for those uh, in both Syria and neighbouring countries. Um, and uh, I said, yeah, that's all. Thank you. about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.